Okay, so the first thing to say is thanks for coming uh, and spending your lunchtime here um, to listen to me tell you about how eating will make you live shorter. <laughs> so I, I thought I'd start by introducing you to this man, Dave Fisher. So he's a, for all intents and purposes, fairly regular guy. He's five foot ten. He lives in Berkshire. But he has a particular peculiarity about the way he eats. And that is he practices extreme calorie restriction. So for breakfast, he doesn't eat anything. For lunch, he eats about 500 calories. And for dinner, he eats about 1,000 calories per day. And that's, that 1,500 calories is about two-thirds of what the NHS recommends for the average male. And this has significant physiological costs. He's um, verging on underweight by his BMI. He's only 6% body fat, which is about the level of a professional athlete. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that uh, when you do this for a long period of time, at least after the first five years, you're no longer hungry. <laughs> so why is he doing this? Why, why all of this suffering and effort um, to, to, and this physiological cost? Well, he and the thousands of other people who exercise calorie restriction uh, believe that this will add an extra 30 to 40 years of healthy life to him. So I thought it would be interesting to look at what the evidence actually is for this um, from the experiments that have been done and what we know now from some work we're doing in, in my lab uh, to understand about the interaction between diet and ageing. Uh, so I work here in this building in the Institute of Healthy Ageing, which is on the third floor in the Darwin. And we look for any genetic environmental intervention that will extend healthy lifespan. And we try and do this to uh, improve old age life for uh, older people. But we don't work with humans in the lab, so we work with model organisms. And there are numerous reasons for doing this. Uh, one is they're relatively cheap to work with. They've got good genetic reagents and they're easy to manipulate in the lab. But from, the point of view, from our point of view, more importantly, they're relatively short-lived. So we have labs working with the nematode worm, C. elegans. This is a soil-dwelling worm that eats bacteria, and it lives for about two to three weeks. Uh, my lab and other labs upstairs work with the fruit fly Drosophila, and this lives for about three to four months. And then we have labs that work with mice and mouse tissues, and these guys live for about three to four years. And so we hope to learn something about human aging by trying to intervene with these short-lived model organisms. And if we test the same thing in all three of them, we think we might have something that's evolutionally conserved and it might be relevant for humans for aging as well. So I'm sure everyone's aware we're living in an aging society. Uh, but I thought I'd uh, perhaps show you this slide since it tells us two, I think, very two interesting things that at least I wasn't so aware of uh, until a few years ago. So this is the life expectancy at birth for dozens of nations around the world. So each one of these lines represents a different country. And so one thing you can see is that for all of these countries, life expectancy at the time of birth has been increasing over time. So on the x-axis, we have the year of birth. But uh, two interesting things. One is, if we draw a straight line here through the record-holding nation at any one point in time for the last 100 years, you can see that there's been a pretty steady linear increase in life expectancy at birth. And if we take the slope of this line, we can get how quickly this is happening. And it works out that for every 24 hours you live, we gain an extra five to six hours of extra life. The other interesting thing is that the slope of this line isn't showing any signs of levelling off at all, which means if this trend continues, 
Half of the children that are born today should be expected to reach their 100th birthday. And even for someone like me, who's um, somewhere in their 30s, uh, I'm expected to live until my 90s. So this is obviously fantastic. We're all living longer and more healthier. But it inevitably leads to these problems. And these are the diseases that kill us, so the diseases of aging. And so, rightly so, there's an enormous emphasis on research on focusing on each one of these diseases in order to come up with a treatment for each one of these diseases. However, those of us who work in aging might put forward that these are all caused by one common underlying factor, and that's aging itself. And so by understanding and addressing the, uh, aging itself, we could potentially understand and massively improve old-aged health for all people. So we all know of ways that you could increase your life expectancy. So uh, you could decrease risky behaviours. So if you drive, wear a seatbelt, or better still, don't drive at all. If you smoke, stop smoking. Uh, you could take some exercise. This would help increase your life expectancy. And we all know of people who do this under the picture of perfect health. Uh, this man here is Dick Bavetta. He's a, a referee in the Professional National Basketball League in America, and he has been for the last 37 years. This year, he'll be 74 years old, and he's still an active referee in the NBA. But the truth of the matter is that it's more like this for most people. <laughs> so we know that the people who are the ones who are living the longest and reaching their 100th birthdays now have done all the things that they shouldn't do. They smoke, they drink, they're overweight, and in some cases, they're even obese. And so this tells us something about the strength of the genetics that we have informing our life expectancy outcomes. But first of all, before we try and understand how to treat aging, we need to understand what actually causes aging itself. So I must say there's some doubt about this, but probably the most intuitively um, attractive idea, which is generally accepted, is that we age similarly to most things, which is that we accumulate damage over time and fall apart. So, so one way is wear and tear, mechanical wear and tear. So we all know that as we get older, our joints go, and uh, this could just be through mechanical wear and tear over time. But also, um, we live in an aerobic environment, and to metabolize our food to generate energy, we generate partially reacted oxygen, uh, which is very reactive and reacts with molecules inside our cells. And this type of reactive oxygen species damage could lead to a sort of general malfunction of intracellular components that could escalate and sort of lead to a catastrophic failure over time. But the major difference between us and this car is that we have our own built-in repair mechanisms. And so we could potentially slow down aging by either changing the rate of damage accumulation or by changing the maintenance of the whole system. And this has got enormous capacity because if we look around in nature, we actually think there are some organisms that may even be immortal. So on the left here, this is the so-called immortal jellyfish, and on the right, the marine hydra. And the way people have studied this is if you go out into the wild and collect a whole lot of these hydra and bring them back into the lab, presumably you collect a whole lot of different ages. And over time, it's been found that there's no signs of senescence amongst these animals. So it's been proposed that they're immortal. Now, of course, we don't know that for sure, but it does at least tell us that uh, extremely high levels of functionality in multicellular organisms for extremely long periods of time is possible. But that's not the case for all organisms because we know that different animals have different lifespans. So for instance, this mouse um, on the left here 
lives, has a sort of an intrinsic upper limit to its lifespan of about three years. This monkey for about 60 years, and on the right we have a bow-headed whale, which apparently can live for up to 200 years. And so this tells us a couple of things. One is that genes are involved in aging, and the other is that evolution has shaped aging, which is odd, right? Because if we think about evolution, most of us would think about it as a sort of a, an optimization process, so making you better for your environment over time. So how is it that aging or evolution could tolerate such a deleterious trait like aging and even select for it? Well, the basis of why this happens is largely down to uh, these two men, Haldane and Medawa, who are here at UCL, in fact, who uh, recognize the fact that the force of natural selection declines with age, so that after the age of reproduction, it virtually comes down to zero. And maybe the best way of thinking about this is uh, the way in which Haldane recognized it was by thinking about a late-onset deleterious disease like Huntington's disease. Now, this has a genetic basis, and so it's passed on from one generation to the next. But by the time the sufferer realizes they have the disease, they've already passed it on to the next generation. So you can see how this deleterious mutation can escape the force of natural selection by having a late onset. So maybe aging actually works in the same way, where effectively we're passing on aging to the next generation. A slight variation on this idea was uh, proposed and formalized by George Williams, who uh, put forward this idea of what he called antagonistic pleiotropy. So this is the idea that early in life, perhaps the genes that cause beneficial effects early in life are the same genes that cause aging. Thereby, you could generate a system where you actually select for aging. And the argument goes like this. So uh, this is my nephew, he's very young, and so there's a strong selection pressure for him to reach reproductive peak and uh, pass on his genes to the next generation. So what if the genes that cause this enhancement early in life are in fact the same genes that cause this detrimental effect late in life and ultimately lead to death? <laughs> then we have a system. I, I have an alternative version of this, uh, if you, Brian Cox doesn't do it for you. I found this <laughs> amazing photo on the web. Um, so what if the genes that actually cause this early life beneficial effect are the same genes that cause the detrimental effect late in life now you have a system whereby you select for aging indirectly by selecting for the early life benefits. And if that's the case, it means that we're all host to genes whose normal function it is, is to cause us to age. And so if that's the case, then we should be able to find mutations in genes that cause animals to live longer. And in fact, this is exactly what was found. So 25 years ago now, the first single gene mutation was reported for the nematode worms, the elegans, which, as you can see from this lifespan plot, basically doubled lifespan for the worms. And uh, it was in 2001 that people first discovered a single gene, gene mutation in flies that also extended lifespan. And in fact, this came out of the Institute for Healthy Aging upstairs, which was remarkable because people thought for a long time that perhaps this worm thing was just some worm peculiarity. They have an alternative developmental phase, which is effectively like suspended animation. And so perhaps they were just recapitulating this effect during adulthood. So when the first single gene mutation was found in flies, people really started to pay attention. And then a couple of years later, it was also found a single gene mutation that extended lifespan in mice. So there are two very interesting facts about this, I think. One is that these mutations conform to that idea of antagonistic pleiotropy. So 
by mutating the gene, the organisms have a late-life beneficial effect, they live longer, but they pay the price earlier in life because they're usually dwarf and they're usually subfecund, so they're lower fertility as well. The other interesting thing about it is that all of these uh, organisms, those mutations for all of these organisms were actually found to exist in the same molecular pathway, and that's to do with insulin signaling. So this really looks like one of those interventions that's evolutionarily conserved and therefore may be relevant to human aging. So just in case you don't know, um, uh, I thought I'd explain just quickly what insulin signaling is and how it might be involved. So inside our bodies, we're made up of tissues and cells inside of tissues. And on each of our cells, we have various molecular mechanisms for dealing with food. So when we eat food, our body needs to tell us we've eaten food so that we then take up those nutrients and put them to good use. So when we eat sugar, our pancreas secretes insulin that goes into our bloodstream and tells peripheral cells that have insulin receptors that they need to take up this sugar and put it to some good use, for instance, in growth. So what I've been saying is that perhaps by mutating genes that are in this pathway, we turn down those genes that are related to growth and somehow set up an alternative state inside the cells that's to do with self-preservation and better preserves the organism for longer. So that's fine when you're dealing with an animal where you can mutate its genes. But we can't do this for humans, obviously. And so now we come back to this idea of how calorie restriction might be involved in extending lifespan. Because for most of us, there's often the equation between sugar in our diets and the calories in our diets. And so we come back to Dave Fisher and his calorie restriction diet. And this was made well, more prominent, I guess, last year, if any of you saw the BBC Two program on Horizon about eating less and living longer. And he went through a number of these diets. So from, from the outright calorie restriction diet, through various sort of uh, intense fasts, I guess, through to what finally he found was the most satisfactory of them all, which is the 5-2 diet, in which you eat normally for five days, and on two days of the week, you reduce your income, if you're a girl, 500 calories if you're a boy to 600 calories for those two days. And if any of my friends are representative of this, I reckon about 20% of the people here are probably even practicing this diet now. Um, but where does this actually even come from? Why, why do we think that eating less might make us live longer? Well, there is some experimental evidence for this, and it mostly goes back to this paper, which was sort of the first recognized calorie restriction experiment to extend lifespan. And this was published in 1935, in which uh, Clive McKay took a group of white rats and he split them between two treatments, one that had free access to food and the others that had access to a limited amount of food that was uh, increased over time gradually. So on the top left graph here, you can see there are, there are two lines that rapidly shoot up on the y-axis and then are maintained at a high level throughout life. And these represent the body weight of those groups that were given free access to food. So they rapidly gained weight and they maintained it throughout their lives. These other lines that are sort of stepwise increases throughout life, these are the restricted animals. So they were given a limited amount of food that then restricted their development. And when they started to look a bit sick, they were given a little bit more food. And so you can see this sort of stepwise increase. And the idea was that if you stretch out their developmental phase by feeding them less food, and then you keep going with that decreased food throughout life. You stretch out all the phases of life and perhaps you live longer. 
And in fact, this is kind of what he found, is that if you look at the lifespan curve of the fully fed animals, you can see they die much more rapidly than those that were on the calorie-restricted treatment. So this was some time ago now, and since that time, there have been many, many experiments in many organisms reporting a positive effect of calorie restriction to extend lifespan. And that's all the way from single-celled organisms like yeast, through invertebrates, through lower vertebrates, and even into mammals. And most recently, there have been two reports in the literature, at least, uh, that report at least some kind of positive effect on lifespan of calorie restriction in monkeys. And so I think it's pretty easy to spot which one's the calorie-restricted one, the sort of anxious-looking one on the left. And um, this one on the right, to me, just looks like a grumpy old man, to be honest. Anyway, so I guess what's going on here is they're trying to reproduce that effect that I was talking about with the mutation, whereby restricting food somehow lowers this signaling pathway into the cell to increase growth and sets up an alternative self-protecting state that protects the organism for longer. And as a side effect of this, we know that we gain certain other features. And those other features are things like what Dave Fisher has. So we know that the animals gain all of these physiological changes, and this is the sort of thing that Dave has. So he has decreased body fat, I've told you that already. He has decreasing levels of uh, a circulating hormone called IGF-1, and there was a lot of emphasis on this in the BBC2 program. He has uh, lowered levels uh, of glucose in his circulation, and he has a lowered BMI. Other calorie restrictors, including Dave, would report all sorts of other physiological benefits. So, for instance, if you close your eyes and try and balance on one foot, apparently this declines rapidly with age, and it's quite a good marker of how old you are. Uh, so calorie restrictors would claim that they can do this for longer than someone for the same age. Uh, some, improve, some report improved reflex, reflexes for someone of the same age. Others improved in, uh, report improved short-term memory and improved IQ. So some of these things I don't think are that impressive because you can practice at them and get better at them. But other things, like lowered IGF-1 or lowered glucose, you can't cheat that. So the critical thing here is, even though you've got these features of an organism that would be longer-lived, the key thing is, are these actually going to cause you to be longer-lived? Is it worth the investment? So I thought I'd take a couple of minutes to go back to the monkey data, since this should be most informative to us. So there are two reports, as I said, on the effects of calorie restriction on lifespan in monkeys. And the top left, we have the age-related survival for the first group of monkeys. And you can see in blue, the blue line, you can see the animals that have had free access to food, and in the red line, the animals that were calorie-restricted. And you can see there's quite a separation there. So there's more animals alive in the restricted group than in the fully-fed group at the moment. However, this graph doesn't contain all of the data. Uh, so there are a number of deaths that occurred through non-aging-related causes, and these were things that were reported, like gastric bloat or complications due to anesthesia. And it's, that's fine to take them out of the data, but it should be that they occur roughly equally between the two groups, so that when you reinstate them, you should preserve the difference between the two lifespan curves. But in actual fact, when you reinstate those deaths, you can see on the right that the calorie restriction group has actually been more dramatically affected by those non-aging-related deaths than the other group. And there's actually no significant difference between these two lines at the moment. Now, there may be some difference 
that's going to happen on from this point, but that's a, a kind of a doubtful outcome in the end. And this is real, and this is important, right? Because if you practice calorie restriction in order to live longer, you don't want to know that uh, there's an increased chance that you'll die of something that's not aging-related through complications due to surgery, for instance. So what about the second report? That's the first one that came out in 2009. What about the second one that came out last year in Nature? Well, here, actually, the data is even more doubtful. So we have a late-onset calorie restriction treatment here on the bottom left. The solid lines represent males and the dashed lines females. Again, the calorie-restricted groups in red and the fully-fed or the ones with free access to food are in blue. And so you can see here there's pretty much no difference between the two food treatments for males or for females, and there's no statistical difference between them. And when you start the treatment even earlier in life, because this was late-onset calorie restriction, we find that there's pretty much no effect again, the same, the same trend again. So we have solid lines for males, dashed for females. But in this case, the red lines seem to be below the blue lines, if anything, uh, indicating again that at best there may be no effect in calorie restriction to extend lifespan. So I guess this raises the question, what's going on here? Why, why have we had all of these positive reports of calorie restriction extending lifespan in all of these different organisms, and then when you do it in the monkeys, it doesn't work? Well, I think there's kind of a reporting bias here. So if you change the food and see a lifespan extension, it's very easy to report that in the literature. But if you change the food and see nothing, you can't actually report that in the literature, obviously, unless you're working with monkeys. So if you're working with monkeys, everyone knows you're doing it, and everyone wants to know what the answer is. And so you can't not report this uh, lack of effect. And so I think this points to something, and, and actually, if you look into the literature more closely, you'll find all sorts of small reports of people saying, we tried calorie restriction in our animals and it didn't work. And so I think that this is telling us something about the way that food interacts with the organism to affect its lifespan outcomes. And basically, it says that we're missing something here, and there's more information than what we have available to us at the moment. So there are three kind of obvious things that I put forward that we're missing. And there's probably more than this. But the three things that I could think of straight away were that genes matter, our genetic makeup matters. We all know that different people live for different amounts of time. Like I said earlier, this woman smoking off her 100th birthday candle, uh, that this could then interact to affect the way we respond to the dietary treatment for lifespan outcomes. The other reason is that diet is complicated. Um, so if you just look on the side of a cereal packet, there are dozens of nutrients, and all of them have recommended daily intake allowances, that all of these things could be important in shaping our lifespan. Now, calories are a really convenient way of summarizing food into one number. So it's very easy to you know, watch your calories and eat a bit less, but it's not so easy to monitor all the nutrients in the diet and make sure you get a proper balance of them that could be beneficial for longer life. And the third one, which is probably not so important for the organisms that we use in the lab because we keep them under very carefully controlled conditions where we think that they don't get sick, but uh, it's more relevant for humans and probably for the monkeys as well, is that they live in the real world, of course. And so if you're nourished differently, it alters your ability to recover from things differently. So it's well known that if you're uh, relatively malnourished for certain nutrients, uh, you'll find it more difficult to recover from surgery or from acute illness. And so these things could also interact with diet to affect lifespan outcomes in the real world. 
So we're going to talk about one and three, but I thought I'd just take a little bit of time to look a bit more about number two, because this is the work we do in my lab at the moment. And to go there, I need to introduce you to our model organism. This is the fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster on the right here. And the way we do our experiments is we keep them, I'm not sure as you can see, in these glass vials. And at the bottom of the vial, we have their food, which is just sugar and yeast in an agar gel. And this relatively simple setup means that we can easily manipulate the food and look for interacting effects of dietary balance on their lifespans. So when we dilute all the nutrients in the food beyond the, which, beyond the extent to which they can compensate by feeding more, we find that they gain an extra roughly 20% lifespan increase, which is not dissimilar from what we find for the other organisms under those calorie-restricted diets. So the first thing that we did was you hold the, since there are only two components to the diet, is just to hold the sugar constant and vary the yeast, or hold the yeast constant and vary the sugar, and ask which one of these components is likely to be responsible for this effect. And we found it was the yeast component that was critical for this effect. So yeast for flies provide all sorts of nutrients. Basically, they supply everything for the flies except the major calorie component, which is the sugar. So they supply protein, fat, uh, sterols, uh, vitamins, uh, minerals, all sorts of things. And so we divided up these into different categories and did the same experiment again. So we just varied one of these nutrient groups and asked which was responsible for this lifespan effect. And this was very clearly shown that it was, in fact, the protein component that was critical. So this is actually now also known for mice. I know of an unpublished study in which if you look very carefully, the high levels of protein in a diet will dramatically shorten lifespan, whereas relatively restricted uh, levels of protein in the diet are associated with longer life. And I think this says something for the diets that very heavily emphasize protein in order to assist weight loss, that we actually don't know what the long-term effects of these are. But from the experimental model organisms that we use, it seems to be associated with much shorter lifespans. But protein is actually more complicated than all that. So this is the food pyramid, and most of you would know that we get our, the majority of our protein from dairy, meat, and some vegetable protein. But protein is actually made up of subcomponents, and those subcomponents are called amino acids. And there are 20 different amino acids that make up protein. And they can exist in different proportions relative to each other in any one protein. So we then started to manipulate individual amino acids to see if any of these could recapitulate this lifespan effect that we see with protein restriction. And what we actually found was that if you manipulate by reducing just one single amino acid in the diet, you could actually re fully reproduce this dietary protein restriction effect. And this is also known for rodents as well, that if you manipulate in a very careful way a single amino acid in the diet, you can reproduce these longevity outcomes seen normally seen under calorie restriction. So what's going on here? Well, uh, there's a different system in the cells uh, that responds to amino acids in the diet. So again, we have this ability to tell our bodies that we've eaten something, eaten amino acids in this case, and communicate to inside the cell to turn on pathways that are associated with implementing those nutrients, for instance, in growth. And this protein that communicates this signal is the TOR signaling pathway. And it turns out that if you reduce amino acids in the diet, you reduce signaling potentially through this pathway, and maybe this is the reason 
why the cell is reprogrammed to be preserved better for longer. Now, this pathway is even more interesting because for this one, we have a drug. And this drug was found in a bacterium uh, that's found on Easter Island. And this drug was found to inhibit the growth of fungus. And when it was discovered what this drug actually acted on, uh, the drugs called rapamycin, it was found that it acts on a protein inside the cells, which was then called the target of rapamycin, hence the name Tor. So we now have a drug that targets the pathway that intervenes between amino acids and growth inside the cell. So logically, if you feed the drug to the animals, you should be able to reproduce the effect. And now we have a drug for aging. And this was, in fact, reported uh, a couple of years ago here in the Institute of Healthy Aging again, uh, that the effect of rapamycin addition, low doses of rapamycin, to flies throughout their life results in an extended lifespan. And in fact, this has also now been shown for mice as well. So it seems now that we have a treatment or a drug that could be associated with longer life for treating that works in flies and in mice. So I've said a lot about treatments uh, and genetic interventions and dietary interventions that can extend lifespan, but I haven't said much about what's actually happening at the molecular level to, uh, to change the program of the cells, if you like, into that long-lived form. So I've represented it always like this. You have nutrients, you have some kind of signal to growth. And all I've been saying is that if you block this, you reprogram the cell somehow to preserve the cell for longer. Now, that's kind of the level of detail that we actually have at the moment. That's about as much as we know. But there are two major theories about why this happens. One is that actually when you block growth like this, that's all you need to improve health. So growth's great early in life when you're actually getting bigger, um, but perhaps it's not so good to have these pathways activated late in life when you're no longer physically expanding. So maybe you just don't need growth late in life, and in fact, when you turn these pathways on late in life, they're bad for functioning of the cell. A slight alternative version of that is that in turning off the pathway associated with growth, perhaps you trigger an alternative pathway that's associated with maintaining the system better for longer. And so by enhancing maintenance and repair, and by channeling what the body thinks are scarce nutrients instead of towards growth, but towards maintenance and repair, as a side effect of this, perhaps we live longer. So I guess given the fact that we know relatively little at this stage, there's so much more to know about what actually is going on inside the cells to cause the animals to live longer. And given all the confusion about dietary balance, the genetic interaction with dietary balance to affect lifespan, and the prospects for how this might be relevant for us in the real world, it really leads us to ask, is this guy just completely wasting his time? Has he invested all of this dietary energy into something that won't actually work? Well, it's a little bit unfair because actually in all the interviews I've read and seen with this man, he's one of the first to admit that this is an experimental diet. He's not guaranteed a lifespan benefit outcome, but he's willing to invest these 20 years now of dietary restriction in order to gain those benefits. So I thought it might be worthwhile just at least updating people on what it is that we actually know before anyone decides to do this. But so finally, I thought I'd just check and see how old people actually thinks he, think he is. So I, can I get a show of hands? People who thinks he's 25 to 34 years old. 34 to, 35 to 44? 
45 to 54. Okay. Well, it turns out he's actually 55. So I think most people would agree that even if he's not going to live longer, at least he looks better for his age. <laughs> so. <laughs> so that just leaves me to thank the people in my lab that actually do the work, um, and then the funding agencies, and of course you for coming and listening to my talk. So thank you. We have a few minutes for questions. Do we have any questions? Here, yeah. there's a mic coming down to you. So with certain sort of populations around the world being vegetarian and naturally have a protein-reduced diet, is there any kind of real-world data to back this up? Or? Uh, so there are lots of books about this. Um, there's one book that someone gave me called The China Diet. I'm not sure whether people have read this. Anyway, it's very strongly promoting the fact that the rural Chinese diet with relatively low amounts of, pro of meat and a high emphasis on vegetarianism as well as um, daily exercise and all this sort of stuff is in fact the key to living longer. So there are, there are various studies that seem to agree with that. There's, there's also some, uh, some work that's been done on the Japanese population. Uh, you may have heard of the island of Okinawa and they've eaten a relatively low amount relative to mainland Japanese people. And these people tend to live longer than those on mainland Japan. And when they emigrate to America, their lifespans dramatically reduce. So that there's, there's sort of... <laughs> Uh, evidence there. Yeah. Humans are difficult. Right, we have another down here. Uh, if it is found eventually that restricting something, some part of the diet, um, actually helps you drop dead, but equally uh, it fi you find that uh, that can actually make your body frailer and more susceptible. Do you think the age-old sort of British compromise would, could come in where you do a bit of each and get a good compromise? Or, or is it more black and white? <laughs> Nothing's black and white. Um, yeah, I, I think, so there are a couple of things. I guess uh, one thing that's, that's important about this, if, if there were a diet that would really enhance your health with old age, it would be important that it's reversible. Okay, so it's important that if you start late in life that it's actually beneficial. And there's a little bit of work from the labs here upstairs that the dietary restriction effects on the flies at least is fully reversible. Um, but whether that's true or not for other organisms, we don't know yet. Um, as, sorry, what was the other part? If it makes you more frail, if the price... You were saying that it, it can make you more susceptible okay. to methods of death. Yeah. Yeah, I can't really say. I mean, it's always possible, I guess. I think what's really important here is that what we end up doing is we end up refining these dietary or genetic treatments to the extent where we can find, try and tease out the beneficial effects from those detrimental ones as much as we can. And this should then put us in the best possible position to understand the molecular processes uh, that are going on here and actually really come up with an intervention that's properly targeted towards aging rather than uh, coming up with these compromises as well. Thank you. We have some questions at the back there. 
Um, <clears throat> I've always believed or heard that men don't live as long as women. Is there anything of this in your research? And also, I wonder if the monkeys were allowed any access to um, sort of trees or grass or anything like yeah. that, and if that damaged them, because they look pretty depressed. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right about the monkeys. They, they really, uh, I think this is a pretty hard life, living in these experimental setups. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what the setup was for the monkeys, but I, I do understand they had restricted movement, so I don't know exactly what the setup was. Um, so I can't really answer that one. There is a difference between males and females in life expectancy. Exactly why that is, we don't know. I can tell you, my lab doesn't work on this, but there's some work in Linda Partridge's lab that is trying to address this now, at least for the flies. Thank you. Yeah. We have another question here. Thank you. Um, I just had a question. I wonder if you've got any um, recent research you can recommend about carbohydrates as well. I don't know if you mentioned that. I came a little bit late because uh, yeah. I know a bit about the carbohydrates from the recent research about breast cancer and using that to sort of um, either prevent it or yeah. to... So I'm not aware of really clearly shown effects of... It depends what you mean. So it levels... Um, so one of the major problems when we're discussing this always is that it's relative to something, okay? So uh, one of the major criticisms is that all you're doing is just preventing someone from overeating. So of course you're gonna make them live longer, all right? So what we're talking about is some kind of um, peak or optimum diet that's somewhere in the middle of overeating and undereating. Okay, so the exact way that carbohydrate could work, that's really difficult to comment on without controlling all of the other nutrient balance properly. So I think, I think we've still got a long way to go before we start singling out single nutrients to say they have this or that effect on a specific disease. But what I, what I can say is that these, it, it, there's something weird about these amino acid restriction diets, and I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I'm also aware of evidence in mice at least that if you deprive mice of a single amino acid for days before surgery, that they have a much improved outcome after surgery. And I don't understand why this is, but people think this might be some activating some stress response pathway that then enables you to recover much quickly once you've come out of it. So I can't really comment on your exact question. I think we've got time for one more question and there's a gentleman here. Notwithstanding the experiments, we are living so much longer than we used to 100 years ago and we are the most obese nation in the Western world. So is that explainable? No, and every time you, every now and then you see this in the media, right, that being a bit overweight is actually good for you. Um, and I think there was one just the other day in the press as well. Um, but I, I think um, there's, some, there's some reporting bias again to do with that, which can explain those effects. I, I, I think the majority of the gains that we've, that we've achieved over the last 100 years have largely been doing things like just washing your hands or you know, uh, antibiotics or you know, these types of things. And so it means that we're all living much healthier throughout life up until the point at which we start experiencing these age-related diseases. And that's been reflected in where we focus our research efforts now, that we're much more interested in those diseases now. Yeah. Right, well, thank you uh, for your questions. And I think you'd like to join me in thanking Dr. Piper for his very interesting lecture.